Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Alice McDermott, author of eight works of fiction, winner of the National Book Award for her novel, Charming Billy, a three-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, a Whiting Award winner, a member of the Suwannee Writers' Conference faculty for low 20-plus years. I was honored to have her as one of the earliest contributors to my editorship with her spring 2017 craft essay, Only Connect, and most recently her remarkable story, Half Spent, which appears in the fall 2021 issue of the Suwannee Review. Alice McDermott, welcome to the Suwannee Review podcast. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much. Alice is here at Suwannee as the Haynes lecturer. She gave a reading from her new novel in progress. And I guess I might ask you, what essay has been most on your mind from your collection? What about the baby as given where you are in the current composition of your novel? Since you really talked about how really the middle of any novel is a shipwreck. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose until this moment, I hadn't worried about the middle of book syndrome um, as a friend of mine named it, as I mentioned in that essay, mobs, rhymes with sobs. (laughs) (laughs) And certainly I've had experience of that. You've kind of gotten past your initial enthusiasm and all the joy of just making things up whole cloth. And then you realize that everything that you've put down has committed you to make sense of it and make it belong. So I guess maybe the one essay that's been most on my mind of late as I construct this novel and yet again another novel, the two novels that I have going simultaneously, is the claim that I make in one of the essays that every object in fiction has meaning. I'm so glad you brought that one up. (laughs) That's a high bar I'm finding as I'm composing my own work. (laughs) I don't imagine that as you're composing, since we're both writers, you know, you introduce an object like Parsifal the Holy Grail. You're like, here comes the object full of meaning. Exactly. Insert here. Yes, insert here. It's like a Q Holy Grail. (laughs) But, But I mean, there is this really remarkable dialectic, I think, that happens in the novel that requires a ton of nerve and fortitude, which is... The dialectic between what you unwittingly or unconsciously throw against the wall, and then as you read and reread and reread, the appearance to you, the writer, the discovery of inherent motifs and ideas and symbols. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that in terms of you know the essays and in terms of your own sort of practice then, as it were, as you as you go about these things in terms of your process. Yeah, and I think that's very much the thing that can happen in a workshop. In the act of composition, you can't call up the orchestra and say, here comes the object that makes all difference. You are just throwing things against the wall, as you say. You're slapping it down. You're, you're moving along. You're trying to discover the story. You're trying to keep your sentences sensible. Um, you're trying to bring some characters somewhat to life. All those balls in the air that you're trying to juggle. But it is the reconsideration of the first draft and the second draft and the going back and looking and seeing in context what you put down before you quite knew the context. 
And I think when anything magical happens in workshops or between writer-teacher and beginning writer, it's in those moments when someone can look at, a, a writer can look at another writer's work and say, I see this maybe about 10 seconds before you've seen right. it. Or 10 years, <laughs> you know, depending on the pace. And that's, for me, that's what's kept me teaching all these years, because you see that it's not my connection. It belongs to the, the writer. The writer just hadn't seen the spark yet. And sometimes you can point that out. And that's when you realize there's something going on here in the composition of a work of fiction that is indeed magical and cannot quite be pinned down and defined but you know it when you see it. 100%. I've always thought that any experience of writing fiction of any length, or the fictive generally, whether it's poetry, short fiction, or the long form, is an argument for the, for the unconscious. I mean, like yes. because, because th there is clearly a higher part of your brain that is initially throwing those things against the wall and waiting for you to catch up. Trying to, shall we say, suture that more tightly to not the current novel you're working on because neither I nor our listeners would have context for it. But let's talk a little bit about this story half spent in a mode that just frankly, your readers don't often see you in, which is the, which is short fiction. Give our listeners just sort of the basic outline of what that story is about. You don't have, you know, you don't have to give away any spoilers, but then we can talk about it in, in terms of its craft and in terms of like you, you, your own process of, of muddling through it as you got there. Yeah, I, I suppose basically it's a middle-aged son dealing with an aging widowed mother along with his two siblings. So the story sort of takes through from the beginning of the mother's widowhood, sort of a long-distance care. The three siblings are scattered from the home in New Jersey where they grew up. Mom is there alone making arrangements for who's going to take care of her in this loneliness and and sort of carrying into that again, that adult middle-aged dilemma of caring for an aged parent, the siblings see their mother as she was Lucille Ball. She was ditzy. She was, you know, the father was controlling and imperious. And she was, well, uh, as he's a woman from another generation. So it's dealing as an adult with this aging parent, but but also dealing with these memories of of who she was. I suppose that in some ways generate the idea of that generated the story just because in my own life, I saw so many of my peers um, dealing with this in different ways. And what intrigued me about, besides the distance, there's the literal distance of the grown children scattered into their own lives and, and being called back, or at least having to turn their attention every so often to this mother who was still living in the home where they grew up. But there, there was also the emotional distance that seeing someone who is no longer the person she was when these three siblings were children, and yet still seeing her through that. So I, I thought in the story they needed to have their eyes opened to the value of their mother's life when she was not caring for them and she was not the cliche they um, comfortably believed her to be. In hearing you talk about this story you're talking about sort of like a constellation of ideas floating around. Mm -hmm. But in a way, using one of your own essays, sentencing, and the limits sentences put on things, mm -hmm. what was the actual inspiration 
or the limiting moment, as it were, for when you began half spent. I'll read you, it's such a great first line. It's so Chekhovian in its kind of economy. Four years after Martin's very frugal father passed away, his mother sent him a musical birthday card. I think that there's a moment of of lift and understanding when you know where to begin. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about when you sort of knew where to begin. The cards were somehow there immediately for me in imagining this woman who in many ways had to be the center of the story, even if she feels like she's at the periphery of most of it. And there was something about the extravagance, the music, the kinds of songs that would end up in musical cards, something of garishness and cheapness and glitter and silly tinny songs and yet also something of of real effort to connect and to express in her own way a uh, deep deep affection and so though somehow that image and this goes back to the objects <laughs> essay, no, that's exactly what I'm talking about yeah, yeah yeah i knew the cards were there i knew this was going to be a way to begin to define her and yet i had to see how does it operate to use a layman's term plot wise you know it wasn't it couldn't just be icing right. it couldn't just be one with how she dressed or the perfume that she used or the satin blouses that she loved those were all small things this was going to be uh, something that not only gave the reader and gave me a sense of who she was on many levels and how easily she could be dismissed because of the extravagance and the stupidity of these expensive cards to her frugal family, but also something that was going to indicate the depths that they didn't recognize. Um, so it that had to happen in the story, and I didn't know how. Right. Do you recall sort of how long that story took you to write? I, I mean, in terms of in in terms of Alice McDermott process, <laughs> honestly. My relationship with short fiction is wrought because every time I begin a short story, always at my back I hear a whispered. This could be a novel. This could co- turn into a novel. <laughs> this could turn into a novel, like, be careful, or this could turn into a novel. I mean, like, what does the voice imply? It's don't be so sure you're writing short fiction and you've right, already right. got two novels. So right. <laughs> in, right. in progress. So just be careful. You don't need three. You know, I mean, I've always thought of you as this like uber professional, completely organized person. But I mean, it's just nice to know that you're like a hot mess in terms, it's a of, mess. <laughs> in terms of, in terms of like your composition process. It's like, oh, you know, I've got two novels going and I think I'll start a short story. Right, yeah. like, or maybe it's a novel. I'm going to make sure my agent <laughs> listens to this one. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Sorry. No, well, so that's why most of the short fiction that I write, I write over a long time. I think this story was probably, you know, um, in the hopper for years, going back and throwing out a lot and, and seeing it take shape. And I think what finally brought me to, to see it as a whole and to see it wasn't a novel good, okay, it, it, it exists in and of itself, was the, the relationship with the caregiver who arrives. Yes, the point from which something is never the same. Exactly, exactly. And then I knew this was, this was not only what the story needed, this is what these three siblings needed. The birthday card, it becomes such a multivalence symbol. And there it is encoded in that first sentence. It's not just the father, to use your emphasis on word choices, it's the frugal father. Because 
how that card operates is it's symbol of a kind of beautiful excess, the opposite of being a spendthrift, that all of her children so desperately need. Because in spite of her kitschy Maybelline mascara, <laughs> shitty perfume, you know, cloying, crappy perfume, she is the one who is trying to get them all to slow down mm-hmm. and to listen to the music, to hear the music. And I'm just wondering when you felt like, you know, you knew that and then how that maybe changes composition, whether it's this short story or even the novel. Does that make your footholds and toeholds firmer or is it a constant oscillation between having firmness and not, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it is. And I used to throw this piece of advice at students and then watch them grow angry with me or, <laughs> or leave my office with a frown. And sometimes I would say to them, you know, the story's too much about what it's about. <laughs> you know, they hated that. <laughs> and I think I sensed that danger and that may be why I put the story aside so many times. Because again, it's you might not start out saying, here's the symbol, but the minute you start to think, here's the symbol, I got the trick of this story. I got, you know, put the card in the first line, and then the cards come back, and then you'll bring it back at the end, bingo. And as soon as you start thinking that way, you've lost it. You've lost the story. It's not surprising you anymore. You really emphasize in the essay Only Connect that all works of narrative are in fact exceptionally extremely protean for a long period of time. And I think for apprentice writers, they set something down and they think this is done. Right. This is this this brick is laid. This cement is setting <laughs> Absolutely, up. Absolutely right. <laughs> when it is in fact not the case, which in some ways relates to your other th- that other brilliant observation. I'm going to I'm going to jumble the essays. I'm sorry. But when you talk about where a story actually begins, how often mm-hmm. when you're working with apprentice writers, you're like, actually, your story begins on page 20. Talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. We set out with some purpose. We have to. Even if you understand you, the purpose may change, your ideas might change. But again, there's the danger of recognizing your own cleverness and thinking, got it, I'm done. That's what I was after. In Half Spent, I do remember... I don't know if I could, I remember the line clearly enough, but I remember the the line at the mother's wake when one of the caretaker's brother is there as bartender. Thomas. Thomas, and and all the caretaker's choir and uh, friends have arrived in this little house and the siblings are not feeling very comfortable Mm -hmm. with these foreigners in their house. Mm -hmm. And Martin, the point of view character, accepts a a drink from Thomas, who's acting as bartender, Mm -hmm. and he feels this tightness in his throat. And he wonders if it's resentment, racially charged against these foreigners, or if it's only grief. And that was the line that made me think, I got to finish this story. Mm -hmm. This is not the line I set out to find a place for when I began with the card. But I understood for me that's really what the story is about. That's really at at the heart of everything that goes on in the story. It's a little bit aside from what I thought the intention of the story. It's part of it, and it becomes sort of an inevitable 
which is fine with me. But I think every once in a while, when a story takes you to a place, even a novel takes you to a place, it's not exactly where you thought you were going, but it's the thing that makes you commit to it. And I thought, do we know, do we, human beings in 2021, do we understand that that's a dilemma? Maybe we're all unable to discern. Is it resentment or is it just grief? Having had the pleasure of editing the story is that's one of the things that cuts through some of the very thorny issues of characterizing an Ethiopian family walking into the you know, what is essentially a second generation bougie household. (laughs) It's about the projection and the deflection of grief. There's an extraordinary way in which these people, this family, Aida's family, Bettina Thomas, are urging from a deep sense of spirituality that you literally stop and pay homage by way of, of beauty and religious song, which which makes me think maybe this would be a great time to have you read the ending. A spoon against a glass, followed by his sister's commanding engineer's voice, relieved the awkwardness of all this. Rosario sniffed, put a knuckle to the corner of her eyes. Hey, everybody, his sister said, can I have your attention for a minute? Everybody? She was standing before the fireplace, the spoon and the wine glass in her hand. She made all the expected remarks about how grateful she was to the neighbors, to the family members who had come from so many far-flung places, and, of course, to Aida. What would we have done without you, Aida? Martin was aware of his brother beside him shifting his weight. His sister said, Mom had a wonderful life, a great marriage, a great family, if I do say so myself. There was some laughter. She loved us. She loved her grandkids. She loved her friends. We'll miss her, of course, but really, what more can anyone ask, I mean, of a life? Her eyes, which had been public speaking style, focused somewhere above their heads, now fell on her two brothers. Am I right? Beside him, Martin's brother, who was on his third vodka, called out, Well done! Meaning, of course, that's enough. There was a smattering of applause, and then his sister said, But please stay and eat up these sandwiches. We've got so much wine, and remember great occasions for your next party. Marissa is my old high school buddy. She and her daughter have done such a great job, haven't they? Please keep them in mind. Their business cards are on the table. And then that change in the air, a vague stirring that portends the beginning of the end of an occasion, great or otherwise, Martin thought. His sister stepped away from the fireplace just as the first departing neighbor stepped forward to say goodbye, and Martin turned to his brother, about to say, that's that, when a male voice, a strong and steady tenor, cast itself out over their heads. Low. It sang, sweet and long-drawn, as soft and mellow as a lullaby, and yet sufficient to suddenly silence them all. Lo, how a rose air blooming. Thomas, who was still behind the wheeled cocktail cart, had one hand on its glass edge, the other was splayed over the breast of his crisp white shirt just below his throat. 
His head was thrown back and his eyes closed, his Adam's apple moving as he articulated each word, precise, gentle, from tender stem hath sprung. Martin could see him take a luxurious breath of Jesse's lineage coming as men of old have sung. And then Bettina joined in from the other side of the room. It came a floweret bright. Skinny as she was, her voice was astounding, big but modern, an American idol voice, as Martin thought of it, a voice that seized the words, shook them, drew them down into her chest, and then sent them toward the ceiling, both plaintive and defiant somehow. Amid the cold of winter, when half-spent was the night. Now, from all around the room, Aida's friends raised their voices as well in perfect, practiced harmony. Isaiah, twas foretold it, this rose I have in mind. The living room ceiling was low enough, and the singers were distinctive enough in their Sunday suits and jewelry and hats, that for a moment as they sang, it seemed to Martin they stood a few steps above everyone else, as if they had indeed mounted a choir stall. But of course they had not ascended above the others at all. The others, he saw, the neighbors and friends and family, one by one, were bowing their heads as they listened, or sinking slowly onto the worn couch, into the various chairs. He saw that his sister was still holding the neighbor's hand, the neighbor who had been about to take her leave, but now she was also leaning against the woman, into her arms. His sister's shoulders were rounded, her spine limp, the very posture of grief. He saw that his brother beside him was stooping, bending, as if preparing to kneel. The chorus Aida's unfortunate voice was in there, but it was buoyed and transformed by the better singers among them, slowly faded. And then Bettina soloed again, this time with her head in its bright blue wrap held straight. This flower, she sang, her hand raised to mark each word, whose fragrance tender, as if Each gliding gesture of her fingers sent the words aloft with sweetness fills the air, directed each phrase into the room like a blown kiss, dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. And then Thomas softly, gently joined her, reintroducing that quiet voice of his, the voice that had silenced them all, halted the end of the party, kept Martin from his own blithe declaration, that's that, a voice that had changed everything. And, as if to remind them of this, the two repeated the opening verse, letting their voices brush softly against what became the hymn's final words, when half spent was the night. The room was paused, stunned in the brief aftermath of the song. Only Rosario's quiet sobbing disturbed the silence. In Martin's hand, pressed against his heart, the glittery card she had brought, the glitter, gold and silver and turquoise and hot pink, 
was now all over his fingers and his palm, on his shirt front and his tie. It glistened across the lapels of his blazer. Impulsively, he opened the card again. His mother's signature here was strong, not her own writing, but Aida's. The sudden, tinny, silly notes, happy, jangled through the room. He saw everyone turn toward the sound, simultaneously disapproving and forgiving. But Bettina heard it and laughed. She clapped her hands, moved in her tall shoes, and then she sang again. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. Something you said earlier reminded me of this fabulous anecdote about how Philip Roth used to, quote unquote, start a novel. Is he would say, when I sit down to write a new novel, I start click clacking, typing away at some like shambolic, horrendous beast that for 200 some odd pages sounds a lot like a really bad imitation of my last novel. <laughs> and then at some point out of despair, insanity, and hair-shirted frustration, I make a hard left and write a line that has sort of that lift. And I say, there, that's where you begin your next novel. Mm -hmm. And it's really related to some of the things you talk about in What About the Baby? I was wondering what kind of chord, what, 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 I mean, discuss, Alice. What does that make you, <laughs> what does that make you think about in terms of composition? I think we can make so many wrong turns. It's the, the delight and the terror of beginning a work of fiction. You're making this stuff up. Yeah. It can be anything you want it to be. And even when you think you have a great idea or you have a great opening line or you have a great first page, there are all kinds of places where you can go wrong. You can lose energy. You can make mistakes or rewrite something that you've already explored. And I do think it's that, going back to what we were saying earlier, that when the unconscious kicks in and you come to something that, for me, it's... Something like the moment in adulthood when you say, well, this is me. You know, <laughs> I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to look like that. I'm never going to live there. This is me. This is the life I got. And you look at your story or you look at your novel and say, this is me. This is mine. This is the best I can do right now. Maybe I'll do better. Maybe I'll never do better. But you claim it. And I think it's when the, those moments, a line or a scene or a character, you can't quite say where it has come from, but you recognize it as your own, as an artist, not, not so much as an autobiographical fragment from your life that's your own, but it is your art. It is what you are capable of.
Another thing I've battered plenty of students with is the Philip Levine line, I write what it was given to me to write. And once you recognize that, then it's, it's all about the work. It's not about your career. It's not even necessarily about who's going to read it. It's, this is mine, and this is what I was meant to do, and this is the story I need to tell now. And there is enough authenticity and truth in the fragments of it, in the hot mess that it is, that makes me say, I, got, I, I have to put myself at the service of this story and, and tell it as well as I can. All else be damned. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, fog of composition will destroy the success of any fantastic debut. Let me tell you. You never, in the midst of writing a novel, feel in control of the whole train, do you? Oh, my gosh. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, that would be very nice. But don't you sometimes feel like you're supposed to? Well, yeah, I think I'd sleep better if I felt that way. Alice, I just need you to say no. Just say no, I do <laughs> never, not. Never, never. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, although, no. Thank you the, all of us for joining the, us this morning on the podcast. <laughs> that's it. We're done. <laughs> that's it, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I have felt that way, and those are the novels I've abandoned. <laughs> Okay, that's that's even better. <laughs> if you feel in control, throw it out. You're in trouble, yeah, um, be- because it's not fun anymore. You right. know, it's not interesting to me anymore. It's um, and that's what I talk about in that essay, starting over. You know, I had a good, you know, hundred, two hundred pages of what was supposed to be my second novel. My editor had read it and was excited about it, and and I knew it. I knew, and and you know, all you have to do is write it. Who wants to just write? You know, writing is hard. If I'm not discovering something or learning something or getting a little scared or feeling my stomach, you know, drop into my feet because, oh my gosh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Oh and my goodness. Why bother? You know, if you have a good story, call a friend and tell them the story. Mm-hmm. Over, done, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that is that, um, that sense of, you know, walking on air against our better judgment, as uh, Seamus Heaney said of poets, um, if you're not stepping off the edge, uh, you know, into, in, into uncertainty and darkness, you're not really having any fun. But there is that dialectic, I think, let, let, let's talk about novel construction here. There is that dialectic, at least I found on a chapter by chapter basis, where again, you've got your best laid plans. You've got that slowly dawning consciousness of how the plot is in conversation with some of these, mm-hmm. you know, inherent motifs you've discovered, et cetera, et cetera. And you set out to write a chapter and the plan gets blown. And hopefully the plan gets blown by that very kind of defamiliarizing surprise or left turn we're talking about, correct? Do you right. find that that's generally how it goes for you? It does, yeah. Although, I mean, it's different every time. There's some sense of similarity, but but it's different every time. And that you sort of take a deep breath and charge through, and things are, if not exactly cooking, <laughs> maybe you hear the voice so well that it's just following the voice, and that gives you a sense of confidence. But then there's, yeah, there's middle of the book syndrome. Then there's a sense of, as a reader, am I getting any rewards here? You know, I'm appreciating your cleverness, novelist. I'm appreciating your fine detail, novelist. But I could close the book right here and probably never come back to it, novelist. So, 
You better think about that. Yeah, you know, that was another moment because really that may be from the essay sentencing when you're talking about both like the construction of excellent sentences in the service of that kind of inspiration and surprise over against the construction of sentences in the service of novelist with a capital N. Let me show you how I'm the smartest person in the room. I just saw the epigraph in What About the Baby is, is from the wonderful John Barth. Um, and I, when I was checking my sources, I looked again at his Friday book, which is his collection of various lectures. And I found for the first time, and this was just, just within this past year, that he wrote that the distinguishing thing that he saw among student writers that, that for him made the difference of someone who's going to publish and, and offer the world something uh, valuable in the literary arts was dramaturgy. John Barth. Fascinating. Yeah. One of the kings of the school of sentence. Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. But, you know, your lovely sentences and your cleverness, your technique, but you have to have a sense of story, you know, and, and the drama, dramaturgy, which is a word I've, al- I've, I've always felt I didn't quite understand until I saw how John Barth used it there. It seems to me, again, gleaning from what about the baby that Shakespeare seems to be such a, a big part of your curriculum as, as you teach? I just recently, this past year and a half, I guess it's going on two years now, suddenly in, in the midst of how, you know, just thinking about how we think about what we've all been through with the pandemic and the shutdown and the politics. Um, and a line from, I had to go back and look to see if I remembered it right, because it just seemed almost too prescient. From the very end of King Lear, there's two lines, the weight of these sad times we must obey. Speak what you feel, not what you ought to say. Yeah. King Lear. Yeah. There's nothing better to to address what we've all been through. The weight of these sad times we must obey. Who would write that? Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you another King Learism that I thought about during the pandemic was, so long as we can say this is the worst, this is not the worst. The worst yes. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. And yet I find that, that, that words like that are so extraordinarily vivifying because they actually confer endurance. Yeah. You talk about the importance of rereading in Only Connect. You talk about the importance really of both rereading your own work as you're composing. But you also talk about rereading not simply A Passage to India, but also the Henry plays as a way of expressing a kind of humility before great works of art, you know, in terms of the dramaturgist or the novelist, he or she really ultimately getting to a point of at least having hardened and solidified those connections or made made all of those important connections so that the thing sets up. I was wondering, are there certain books, I know this is maybe a repulsive question to you, um, but are there certain books you do keep rereading, comfort books, books that, you know, sort of restore you to a sense of, of humility or love? I mean, I can tell you personally, whether it's for me, Alice Munro's collection, The Progress of Love. Mm-hmm. Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Nabokov's Lolita. I keep coming back to those occasionally just to remind myself of why I got into this mm-hmm. jam in the first place. Are there, 
Are there McDermott books that do it for you? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think anything by Nabokov. I mean, I, in some ways, I, I think that was the writer who, to borrow his own phrase, I felt that tingle in my spine reading his work and said, I'd like to try that. And I think his short stories are actually, I mean, Lolita is wonderful and Ben Sinister is wonderful and Pale Fire. Um, but, but I think his short stories are sort of my shot of whiskey equivalent, you know, when I'm cold and, and numb and, and thinking, you know, I could have gone to law school. You know? Yeah, look at that. And Virginia Woolf does that for me, too. And Shakespeare does that for me. That sense of going back and admiring and admiring Alice Munro, uh, who you mentioned, also just to see the craft. And, and I think the wonderful thing, and, and, and I guess if, you know, putting these essays together, which I was initially reluctant to do, a how-to book, really, mm-hmm. you know. But I think putting these essays together reminded me, um, because, the, you know, these are essays, really, some of them 20 years old how good all those excerpts are. There was oh not goodness. a single excerpt. And, and really, craft lectures are just, read this. <laughs> you know? 100%. Read this, you know, and then read this, and you have to read this. Nothing I can say about uh, these writers is equal to the experience of reading them yourself. And I was so delighted to see. There, there was not one that, looking back over these, I said, oh, that's kind of a clunker. That's not as good as oh, I remember. I, and I, I, I really do want to, tell you sincerely it didn't feel dated whatsoever there was no dust or there was nothing dusty or fusty about any of it it was it just felt very it felt extremely fresh i mean the hard part was so many things you had to, that that i would write another essay about and say oh and then this one you know mm-hmm. it, it it's not everything but but i think it does reinforce for me not only the value of rereading, but the great miracle of the literary arts. You know, it's not that they, you know, reading good literature makes us better people. We all know that that's doesn't happen. Right? We've, you know, we've been hanging out around the English departments enough. <laughs> and, you know, you'll be disabused of that notion. Um, but the experience, the moment, it's when you are in a book. Over the pandemic, I found it very difficult to, to read long works. I was reading a lot of plays and poetry. And no, you weren't alone that way, sure. Yeah, you know, just that. But then to, to sort of ease back, I reread, and it had been a very long time, Brothers Karamazov. And now I'm rereading it again. Interesting. And again, it's, it's just that I want to be back there, you know? I think about the opening scenes of The Cherry Orchard. I don't know how many times I've returned to it. When I, re- when I return to that play and I read, it's like a memory. It's like not just revisiting something that I've experienced. It's, it's fresh again. I'm living it again. There's nothing else in life that uh, can return you to an experience the way literature can. Well, but then, you know, maybe in some ways, maybe in some ways, like pulling this full circle back to half spent, I think that while it is true that that you know a life lived in letters may not necessarily make you a better person it can have the effect of making you maybe more mindful more perhaps in the moment more potentially quiet at times which can give on to some good things in terms of of character building you know you mentioned you mentioned Nabokov and you have that great quote from Ben Sinister 
a novel that doesn't get talked a lot about by Nabokov is King Queen Name, <laughs> yes. which is so damn funny. I was reminded in, uh, in, in King Queen Nave of how Nabokov in that early scene where the guy loses his glasses I love that and, he, and, scene. He, and he has to like basically describe fuzzy Berlin. I think it's Berlin. Right. And it's just, he arrived at night. He never saw it in the day. And you're just like, you know, in a way that's what we most aspire to in all fiction, which is not just to newly mint an experience, but I think from the writer's side, to trust that out over your skis level of invention. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at least it seems like Nabokov could do that almost at will, mm-hmm. even though I don't know whether or not this is an apocryphal story, but it's my understanding that at one point he walked the, uh, the shoebox of index cards that was Lolita to the furnace, apparently, and Vera was like, no. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which is kind of hard to believe. Yeah, it's comforting. Oh, it's for, comforting. For all of us. Having you on the planet is comforting. And <laughs> having you in Sewanee is comforting. And, you know, I just want to say personally what an extraordinary privilege it's been to work with you, to edit you, to have you part of this endeavor. And uh, your generosity always floors me. And, uh, I'm just glad to have you. Thank you, Adam. It's wonderful to to have a home like the Sewanee Review for that little story of mine. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Sewanee Review Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Sewanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Sewanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at the Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is the Sewanee Review, new since 1892.